0: We will be back in the book of Philippians this morning. <clears throat> Hopefully, <clears throat> this doesn't cause me too much trouble. <laughs> Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> way back in January, when we were still just meeting as an evening Bible study before we had started our morning church services. We went through a series titled, What Makes Us Tick? Examining Our Core Values. If you weren't here for those, those were recorded and those are available online. You can go and look that up at our website, PillarFellowship.org. It's on YouTube. If you look up Pillar Fellowship on YouTube, you can find that series, What Makes Us Tick, back in January. Uh, they'll be helpful just as, uh, just, just as we look through what our church is all about. But one of our core values is that of Others-oriented service, about how we are called to serve one another, that we are to use the things that God has given us, ourselves, our time, our resources, for the sake of serving others. We don't exist for ourselves, we exist for others. And we examined almost the entirety of Philippians chapter 2 that day as we looked, we looked at the instructions from the Apostle Paul and the examples that we have in, in Jesus Christ. And then later as Paul gave us the example of Epaphroditus and, and Timothy. Tangible examples of what it looked like to live out that core value of others-oriented service. And when I started that lesson, I gave an illustration that I'm going to use again today because I just really could not think of a better one. (laughs) But it is that of this service, or there's an app that you can get called IFTTT. And those letters stand for If This, Then That. If This, Then That. The idea of this app is that, that you can set up tasks and triggers within this app where you can connect different services together that when an event is triggered the task will automatically be completed. So it might be a a time-based trigger. So you might tell your phone that at 7 a.m., give me a weather report. If this, if 7 a.m. occurs, then that, give me a weather report. It might be a location-based trigger. When I arrive at home, turn on the kitchen lights. That's assuming that your home has smart devices, (laughs) It might be uh, app-based triggers. You can integrate different apps together so that when something occurs in one app, IFTTT will integrate those things together to create the triggers and make something else happen in a different app. For example, if I get an email from a particular person, send me a text message. Why you'd want to do that, I don't know, but you can. (laughs) It's, It's just this whole app, this service, it integrates these things together. But the whole premise of the whole thing is that when the conditions are met, the results are supposed to be automatic. You don't even have to think about it, it just occurs. When the conditions are met, the results are automatic. If this, then that. Last week we looked at Philippians chapter 2 verse 1, which has some conditional language, some if this language. We talked about how Paul formed this conditional sentence in such a way that that he's not calling into question whether or not the conditions are realities or not, whether or not they are actually present, if they're true or not, but rather he is assuming the truthfulness of those conditions as he begins to instruct the Philippian church. And so we read in Philippians 2, verse 1, he says, "...if there is any encouragement in Christ..." any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, and any affection and sympathy. And then he will go on to give the the then statement in the verses that follow. But we looked at just those the if statement there last week. If there is any encouragement in Christ. And again, there's not a question of this. We don't have to think and go, hmm, is there any encouragement in Christ? No, Paul had formulated the sentence in such a way that he is giving confidence that there is encouragement in Christ. We have been redeemed from under the law. We have been adopted into the family of God, promised an eternal, unfading, and incorruptible inheritance. So there is encouragement for being united to Christ by faith. If there is any comfort in love, and there is, right? Praise God, there is comfort in love. No matter what happens to us in this life, we have the confidence that we are loved by God and can therefore find comfort despite life's storms. If there is any fellowship or partnership in the Holy Spirit, and again, there is, for those who are united to Christ by faith, the Spirit works in us to grant us assurance that we are children of God. He wars against our flesh and helps us to walk in holiness. He even prays for us when we do not know how to do so. The Spirit is at work within us. For those who have trusted in Christ, there is fellowship and partnership with the Spirit of God. And finally, if there's any affection and sympathy, and then once again, there is. Paul expressed the, the confidence that he has In these things, we are loved by God. And that is expressed in in a variety of ways, and we can point to numerous blessings in our lives that demonstrate this fact that we are loved by God. So we have these four conditional statements. If this, then that. And as we're going to examine today, the, the then portion of the conditional sentence If these conditions are present, and they are, so these things are there, there's no doubt about that, then Paul is assuming the reality of their presence, then, therefore, in light of that, in light of what is present, if this, then that. Then this is how you ought to be living your lives. There are these realities that should be present in light of the fact that the conditions are there. These results should be automatic. If this... So what are the realities that should be an automatic response to this this glorious truth that there is encouragement in Christ, that there is comfort in being loved by God, that there is partnership and fellowship in the Holy Spirit, that there is affection and sympathy from God to us? What are the things that that should be present, that should be automatic responses of our lives? Three things. First is that of Christian unity. The second is Christ-like unity humility, and the third is others-oriented service. Let's examine these one by one. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. Again, this is the then portion of the sentence. If these other things are present, then we pick it up in verse 2, then complete my joy. Okay, how are we going to do that? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Complete my joy. This is the overall command that that governs this whole section here. Complete my joy. These are the the three things that we can do that would make joy. Paul, if, If Paul was here today, if we were doing these three things, it would cause great joy in the heart of the Apostle Paul. These things teach us how the church can bring joy to leaders within the church. The first, he says, is Christian unity, and then we're going to see Christ-like humility and others-oriented service. You know, Paul says that these are the things that that bring him joy. But, you know, if we were to turn this around and look on the flip side of this, I can tell you there are few things that just rob the joy out of of a church leader's life than to be constantly dealing with with a church full of of petty arguments, self-centered pride, and selfish living. And sadly, there are many churches that are marked by such behavior. And when a church becomes known by that within a community, it can take decades to reestablish a positive reputation once again. Paul says that these are the things that complete my joy. We know that the absence of those things, that's going to rob Paul of his joy. It's going to make him grieve in his heart. If these things are not present. But we have an opportunity here. As Paul wrote to the Philippian church, they, they had an opportunity to complete Paul's joy. Paul was, was already rejoicing because he of what, what he saw God doing. He saw God at work, even though Paul himself was in prison, right? Locked up. Not his choice, right? He didn't choose to be in prison. That wasn't what he desired. Even though the church that he was writing to, it was suffering persecution because of their faith, Paul still had an attitude of of joy and rejoicing even as he wrote this book of Philippians. Why? Because he saw God at work. He saw what God was doing behind the scenes. And he says, yeah, you know, these things, they're not positive circumstances. I wouldn't have chosen this for myself. But the gospel is advancing, and in that I rejoice. So Paul is already rejoicing. He is already having a, a joyous outlook on life. But now he says to the Philippians, you know, you can make my joy complete. You can make me even more happy. You can make me happier as I live out my life here. And you can do so by displaying these virtues in your lives. And again, the first is that of Christian unity. Complete my joy, how? By being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Unity. Unity. As brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I will say that unity is often a misunderstood word. You know, there are those who would advocate for certain theological or or practical positions that are contrary to the clear, revealed Word of God. Positions that, that we would identify as heretical. And yet, to avoid being disciplined, there's a, a call for unity. Oh, can't we all just be united? Yeah, I know that, that you don't agree with this doctrinal position, but, and I know that it even goes against God's Word, but let's just all get along. Let's just all live in unity and dangerous theology and practice Even sinful living is often brought into churches under the guise of unity. And we'll even say that this is happening right now in a number of denominations across our country. This has happened throughout the history of our country, where there has been brought in doctrine and practice that is contrary to the Word of God. God's Word is clear on these things, and yet, under the guise of unity... They are allowed to exist rather than being addressed. Three weeks ago, the Southern Baptist Convention was held. We're not not Southern Baptists here. We're an independent Bible church. But there were many there who uh, sought to pass a a resolution that would condemn certain ideologies that are contrary to the Word of God. Ideologies such as critical race theory and and intersectionality. They sought to condemn these things, but they could not get it passed. Why? Why could they not get it passed? Because key leaders within the SBC were issuing calls for unity. And so even though these ideologies are clearly contrary to the Word of God, that resolution failed because the leaders were afraid that it would threaten their unity. Just this last week, At the same time that the IFCA convention was being held, the Presbyterian Church in America was voting on what they call an overture. It's an official policy of the the PCA, deciding whether or not they would ordain men who self-identify as same-sex attracted, whether they would ordain them to the ministry. Now, God's Word is clear about what it has to say about biblical morality and biblical sexuality, and we make no apologies for that. We approach these things with attitudes of, of grace and kindness towards others who are going living contrary to God's Word, but God's Word is clear. And the PCA was wrestling with this issue, and there were those who campaigned against this overture on the grounds that we needed to pursue unity rather than passing this overture. And by God's grace, the PCA took a biblical stand on that issue, And the vote overwhelmingly passed with a vote of 1,400 to 400. So that denomination may stand a little while longer against the the tides of theological liberalism. But the issue is that those who were seeking to subvert biblical truth were doing so under the guise of unity. It is a fake unity that is based on faulty assumptions. There are those who believe that, that we must pursue unity at any cost whatsoever. But the Bible gives us a different picture. Truth by nature. Anytime there is a truth claim that is being made, truth by nature is divisive. All truth claims are divisive because it makes a dividing line between that which is true and that which is false. Every truth claim is divisive by nature. So Scripture does not call us to be united at all costs. Scripture calls us to biblical fidelity, to stand for biblical truth, and so we must affirm the primary things of the faith. When Scripture is crystal clear, we affirm those things with no reservation, with no apology. This is what the Word of God says. And we approach these conversations with love, with grace and with kindness, but we make no apologies for biblical truth. But on the other hand, there are many issues where it is appropriate for us to simply agree to disagree. Scripture does provide us with a, a great amount of freedom in a variety of areas or where it's left up to our own personal consciences. When, when God's Word doesn't speak directly to an issue, we're to employ biblical wisdom and our God given conscience to decide how we are to proceed with those things. But sometimes it can be difficult to discern when is something so primary, so fundamental, that is so basic to the faith that we cannot compromise on those things, and we can even be willing to be divisive about these things. And when is something to be held with a more open hand, to have more charity, to have more grace, and to to have more different just uh, grace about these things to where we're not. We can have unity, even though we might have dif- different opinions on these matters. Well, there is a resource on the back table that can help us with this, that. You can look for a, a document with three columns. It's titled, The Keeping Doctrine in Its Place, and that's available on the back table to help with that. But even though that we are to be careful to be observing the things that are clear about Scripture, when, when God speaks, we listen, we are called to unity. And there are things that might threaten our unity, and we must be on guard against those things. Psalm 131, verse 1 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's a beautiful thing. When we are getting along as brothers and sisters in Christ, it is a beautiful thing when we dwell together in unity. And it takes work, but it can be done. It can be done. This, this last week, I was at the IFCA International Convention. IFCA International, if you're not familiar with it, is a, it's an association, it's, it's not a denomination, but it's an association for independent individuals, Bible churches, and ministry organizations and schools who all affirm the same doctrinal statement, but we're independent. We govern ourselves independently. There's no church hiero- hierarchy to speak of. But we share that same doctrinal statement, and we we collaborate together for the sake of ministry objectives. There were around 350 people at the convention this year. It's a little bit of a down year for us. But I'm, I'm sharing about this because we were all gathered together. And do we all agree across the board on everything, of all particular points of doctrine and practice? No, we don't. In fact, many of us have even strong disagreements about approaches to particular matters of doctrine and practice within our respective churches. But that doesn't keep us from having unity with one another as we gather and as we share God's Word together at the convention because we affirm one another as brothers and sisters in Christ because we agree on the most important things. We agree on the primary matters of faith. We agree on what the gospel is about how we can be made in a right relationship with God. We agree on the most important matters of the faith. And so, all the other matters, we have disagreements. And some of them are even strong at times. But we show grace towards one another. And we have unity as we gather at this convention. And we had a fantastic convention of unity. We passed two resolutions, and they passed unanimously. Just tremendous unity that was expressed there at the convention. So though it can be difficult, it is important. And there, there's lots of things that has the that opportunity to threaten our unity. You know, James chapter 4 says that what causes strifes and contentions amongst you, it's your own desires, right? It's our own selfishness that can get in the way of unity. You know, there's the, the classic examples of what color should the carpet be in the church? <laughs> Well, it's kind of a petty thing, but as it can have an opportunity to threaten our unity if we are viewing things selfishly. So the Bible calls us to have unity, to have the, have the same mind, have the same love, to be loving one another as Christ loved us, warts and all. We love one another, being of one accord. So though we we may have some secondary or tertiary disagreements on on some matters, we should not let those things drive us apart, provided that we have unity on the primary matters of the faith. So we must pursue unity, a true biblical unity. Second, we are to pursue a Christ-like humility. We find in chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You know, this really is tied directly into the concept of of unity. In order to have this, this unity amongst ourselves, even when there are some disagreements, it takes a very special humility to have this unity. Unity is not something that can be grown if we were all simply looking to ourselves as the arbiter of truth, if we're looking at ourselves as being all that, but we are called to something higher. We are called to do nothing from selfish ambition, or your translation may say, do nothing from strife or rivalry. This word refers to the idea that that we might be seeking to advance our own causes to the detriment of others. This could be a jockeying for position. This could be an attempt to secure power or influence or perhaps more subtle actions like undermining others behind their backs and subverting the the authority that is in place. This word was often used in the Greek Greek world referring to political subversion for self-advancement. Paul says this is not how we are to be. We are not to be had playing these political games within our churches where we're jockeying for position, when we're playing one another off of each other and subverting the existing authorities. Paul says that is not how we are to be within the church of the living God. Those who seek power are often those who should have the least of it. Because a lot of times we think that, you know what? I'm only going to use this for good, right? I'm only going to use it for, to help others. And we tell ourselves that. And yet in the process, we're actually pursuing it for our own selfish purposes. So we're to do nothing from selfish ambition. The text also says to do nothing from conceit, or your translation may say vainglory, do nothing from conceit or vainglory. This is the idea that, that we really think too much of ourselves. <laughs> and we think of ourselves as being better than others. So, so, of course, I would be better in that position. Of course, I should get, get this ministry position or this position of authority because I am the better person. And this, this idea of conceit or vainglory, we think of ourselves as being better than others. This pairs directly with this selfish ambition idea. Often we pursue these things of position because we think that we're entitled to those positions because I'm the better man. Ba- I'm the better man, right? I'm the better person. We think that we are so great. After all, once again, I'd only use that position for good. I'd only use that position for good. Therefore, I should get that. And it's easy to be tempted by these things. And just a word of A word of caution, if what's rolling through your mind right now, if the second that we say, oh, I would never be tempted by that, I would never go down that road, you've already taken the first step. We are all capable of it, and so we must be on guard against this within our own hearts and lives. That we are to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So that's the, the negative side of the command here in verse, th- uh, verse 3. But there's a positive side. We're to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But on the, on the flip side, we are to do something else instead. And Paul gives us these words, but rather, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Count others as more significant than yourselves. Humility. Humility, probably the most evasive Christian virtue. (laughs) The second you think you've got it now, you just lost it, right? Like, oh yes, I'm a humble person. Well, yep, nope, that was pride, that's it, it's all over, it's gone. Why is humility so hard? Why is it that we we just have such a difficult time with this? You know, it's been said that every sin that's ever been committed from the history of the universe, every sin at the very root of it is pride. I think I know best. I think I know what's right. Therefore, I'm going to do X, Y, or Z that is contrary to what God has said. We think we know better than God himself. It's pride. Satan himself was created as a Servant of God. He was created as an angel in God's presence. And the downfall of Satan was when he said, I will be like the Most High. And he desires the worship of others. Pride. It gets in the way. And humility. Humility is so very difficult as a result. I don't know if you've heard of this before, but... In study after study, the majority of participants in a variety of surveys that have been conducted in a variety of fields, they consistently self-assess themselves as being better than average. For example, driving. How many of you think, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you think that you are a better than average driver? You keep it. <laughs> there we go <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, in one survey, a full seventy five percent of individuals self identify themselves self assess themselves as being better than average. Well, that is statistically impossible. It is statistically impossible for seventy five percent of the participants to actually be better than average. So what's going on there? We have, we have a problem with self-assessment, where we have this, this overly inflated view of our own abilities. You might know, say, yeah, everybody else says, but I'm act- I actually am a good driver. Well, I don't know. You know it, there, there may be some objective uh, measures for that, but it's not just driving. It's every category that these sorts of surveys that have been done, whether that it's academic work. The majority of participants in those surveys think that they are a better-than-average student. The majority of employees say that they are a better-than-average employee. They are a better-than-average citizen. I'm a better-than-average artist. I'm a better-than-average singer. Whatever the category might be, human beings are notoriously horrible at self-assessments. We have an overly inflated view of ourselves and we think that we are better than average despite whatever, whatever possible details could be present that might point to something contrary. We just kind of ignore that because we think too highly of ourselves. We assume that, that we are the bee's knees. I use some old-timey expressions, I am the cat's pajamas in this particular area. <laughs> That's what we think. And this is why being in a community that is going to be loving to one another, loving one another enough to be honest with one another when there are shortcomings that we could speak into each other's life and say, hey, you know what? Maybe we need to think about this in this area of your life. And then it takes humility to receive that. Because the truth is we all have blind spots, right? We do. We know we have blind spots, but we don't know where they are because... They're blind spots. That's what makes them blind. Well, we, right? we haven't, we're, we're blind to those things. We don't see them. And so we need others in our lives that can see me from the outside and provide that independent evaluations that's going to yield much more accurate results because we are notoriously bad at self-assessments. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says, that "...for the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think." because that's our temptation. We have this overly inflated view of ourselves. But then he goes on to say to think with sober judgments, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So we have blind spots, but we're we're called to try to seek those out and we need the community of others to help us find those. So we aren't to be conceited, and we're not to be pursuing things For our own selfish agendas, but we are to be humble. We are to consider others as more important than ourselves. Placing the priority on the lives of others rather than our own. Count others as more significant than yourselves, and this ties in with our our third point, others-oriented service, as Paul goes on to say in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let each of us look not only to our own interests, but also the interests of others. This can make us uncomfortable at times because we're we're very used to looking out for ourselves, right? I mean, we're here. We are. This is Independence Day, right? We're we're celebrating our independence. Yeah, America. We're an independent people, and that and, and you know that's a good thing. I'm. I am not complaining at all about the freedoms that we have in this country. It is, it is a tremendous blessing that God has given us. But sometimes that can work itself so much into our own thinking that we become so independently minded that we end up only thinking of ourselves just as we go about living our lives. And Scripture calls us to a higher calling. And this may inconvenience us at times, but despite the inconvenience, this is what we are called it to. And there is no one who suffered a greater inconvenience than what God did for us when He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. Jesus was the only one who did not deserve to die. Jesus didn't even have to be a man. And yet, He came in the likeness of sinful man. Though He Himself never sinned, He died on the cross for us. So we are called to look out for the interests of If we are living lives of humility, if we are esteeming others as more valuable, as more important than ourselves, then this is going to be the, the natural result. We will live our lives in service to others. We will no longer be concerned merely with what I want or with what I need, but rather with the desires and the interests and the needs of others. And again, this passage is why one of our core values is others-oriented service. We selflessly serve others, both in the church and the community, as an expression of the love of Christ. You'll find that on our website, our core values. Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we are called to live lives in service to others. Once again, I do not exist for me. And you do not exist for you. But we exist for each other to be a service to one another, to bless others. That's why every... Every week as I close our services, I utter the phrase, be blessed, be a blessing. That's why we're here, to be a blessing to others as we live out our lives. We exist for one another. Now, it can be easy to come to passages like this and to make our default position to be okay, this is how we're to be living our lives, and it's true. This is what we are called to be and called to do as followers of Jesus Christ. This is what the text says. These are the commands of Paul and of Scripture for us today. But sometimes we can approach these things and think, okay, these are the things that I need to do to earn a favor with God. These are the things that I need to do to to make God like me more. And if I do these things, then God is going to be additionally pleased with me. And while it's true that, that doing these things does please the Lord, it cannot earn us favor with God. And it can't earn us our salvation in God. Our temptation is to get this order backwards, that if I pursue unity and humility and service, then I will get encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, and fellowship in the Spirit. And we think that, that our performance as believers is what is going to result in these other blessings in our lives. So we need to be careful that we're not getting the cart before the, cor- the horse. Being careful to observe the order that Paul has written things for us. That it's not if we behave in this way, then there will be encouragement in Christ, unit, uh, comfort in love, participation in the Spirit... But rather, it's the other way around. Because there is encouragement in Christ, therefore, this is how I live my life. It's a response. It's a response to what is already present. It's a response to what God has already done for us. It's not to earn God's favor. It's because we have God's favor. Therefore, I live according to these things. It is precisely because I already have encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy, that these things are to be a natural outflow of what we already have in Christ. Not to earn favor, but because I have favor by virtue of the sacrifice of Christ. So if this... If there is encouragement and comfort and participation and affection and sympathy, if this, then that. The automatic response. The the response, again, it is that response, but the outflow from our lives should be that of Christian unity, Christ-like humility, and others-oriented service. Turning it around on its head leads to legalism but viewing it as Paul has revealed it to us in this particular order leads to great blessing and joy, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of others as well. In the coming weeks, we're going to see the great humility of Christ on display as we are going to go through this astounding passage. You know, we sing that song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, that Christ would die for us, we're going to examine that more fully. Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not qual- count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. It's a, just a confounding truth that Christ would do that for us. He's going to, he, he performed the, the ultimate act of humility and was thus highly exalted by God as a result. And how we live our lives is a response to His goodness to us. So as we close here in a moment, we're going to sing a song that that speaks of our response as believers in Christ. I then shall live, not in order to earn a favor with God, but because I have His favor. Let's pray. God, I do pray that you would help us to live lives as Paul has instructed us here. I do pray, Lord, that we would have unity with one another. Not a false unity that is that comes from forsaking biblical truth, but a true unity that comes from embracing the true gospel of Christ. I pray that you would give us humility. Lord, we are pride, pride-filled, arrogant human beings that we always know that we're right. We always know what we think is best. That's our temptation. I pray that you would give us humility, Lord. I pray that you would help us to be willing to listen when others might try to bring words of correction into our lives, that we would be sensitive to that, open to that, receptive to that. That in our humility, we would then allow that to flow out as we serve others. Help us, Lord, to value others as more important than ourselves, to consider others' interests above our own. I pray, Lord, that we can be a blessing as we live at our lives here on this earth. And that we would live as people who behold the wondrous mystery of Christ, who see what was accomplished for us on the cross and say, how can I do anything other than to love my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? As 1 John 4, 11 says, if this is how God loved us, by sending His Son, so then we also ought to love one another. And I pray that our lives would reflect that today. Thank you for your word as it instructs us and encourages us. May we live in the grace that you have given us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.